hello. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell. Today's topic is an audio edition, I would say, to the rebooted series on The Athletic. Michael Cox joins me as ever. Michael Cox, the tactical writer for The Athletic. Michael, what is rebooted and what are we focusing on today? Well, with a lack of contemporary football to look at at the moment, we are pretending it's 1999 in part. Um, So yeah, we've gone back and covered some of the stories that were around from 21 years ago, covering them, I guess, as if it was happening then. So I recently did a match report of Manchester United's very famous victory uh, over two legs against Inter, which they sealed at the uh, San Siro, which I think Ferguson said was tactically Manchester United's greatest leap forward. Really the moment where he knew that they could really go on to win that season's Champions League. I hope I haven't spoiled anything there. Um, So, yeah, it's been uh, good fun looking back at, uh, yeah, some old matches and looking forward to today's podcast as well. Getting into the 99 mindset, I'm going to try to host this podcast, but I must admit that my concern that the Millennium Bug will completely ruin my (laughs) my Game Boy Uh, is actually so great at the moment that I'm struggling to think about anything else. Thankfully, I won't have to do much talking because, as well as Michael, we've got James Horncastle here, uh, Italian football expert of The Athletic, James Horncastle. And James, in your first piece for The Athletic, you made it quite clear that you, like so many others, and dare I say it, many listeners of this podcast were obsessed with Serie A around this time in the late 90s. So I'm hoping that this won't be an arduous topic of conversation for you. Arduous? No. I mean, this is my <laughs> life. Um, no. <laughs> I live for this period uh, of, uh, of football and Italian football. I think it's just so rich. I mean, I th- you look at 98-99, I mean, just some of the stories that came out of Serie A that year, you've got, you know, Ricoba at, uh, at Venezia. You've got uh, Michael's favourite, uh, Hidetoshi Nakata at, uh, at Perugia. Um, <laughs> all kinds of stories, be it, you know, Del Piero blowing out his knee against Udinese. You've got Ronaldo um, 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 as well at Inter. Um, the troubles that, that he had. Um, Fiorentina being winter champions before Edmundo decided that uh, rather than win a league title, he'd rather go to the carnival in Rio. I mean, just... <laughs> There's just so much, so much. You've also got Crespo at Parma. You've got Batigol at Fiorentina, who you just mentioned, Salas at Lazio. This period is generally regarded as the golden age for Italian football and also for its status in the world game. Michael, in your book, Zonal Marking, which tracks the development of modern day football tactics and trends, starting in the early 90s. There's a section for each of the major European footballing nations focusing on their impact on European football tactics. And the section on Italian football quite conveniently focuses on this exact period. Why did you decide to choose that as the period to focus on for Italian football? Yeah, I mean, as you allude to, I just think it was a glorious time for Italian football. And I guess you can say that for for pretty much all of the 1990s. But I think the first half of the 1990s, obviously Ajax were very strong, won the European Cup. There was a lot of focus upon uh, Cruyff's Barcelona at that point. So it felt like the Dutch school was almost the, the predominant one in European football. But after that faded for various reasons, it was really all about Italy. And, you know, I, th- I think the the important thing to point out for those who, who 
don't remember that period is not just it was so strong, but it was also so competitive. I mean, we used to speak about the Seven Sisters, uh, you know, Milan, Inter, Juventus, Parma, Lazio, Roma, Fiorentina, who all started seasons with a decent chance of at least challenging for the title. And for me, it's still the most exciting that any league has ever been because of the strength, but also just the unpredictability. It was brilliant to see a programme on BT Sport not long ago focusing on this era of Italian football. And it was really cool to hear Frank Lampard and Rio Ferdinand talking about how obsessed they were as young, well, I suppose as young players, potentially just as children, about Italian football and this era. And perhaps unsurprisingly, like many others, they both said that their team that they adopted, and I think we all picked a team, didn't we? Theirs was AC Milan, and that's where we are focusing on today. AC Milan in the 98-99 season. Uh, I'm going to let you guys set the scene for me, starting with the manager, Alberto Zaccaroni. James, for those listeners unfamiliar with Alberto Zaccaroni, tell us a bit about his background, how he got to this point. He certainly worked his way up in Italian football. Yeah, I mean, Zaccheroni uh, didn't have a playing career to speak of. He was cut short before he even got started. Um, and he began coaching right at the bottom. Um, yeah, they talk about Fale la Gavetta in Italy, which is to, to literally come up through the ranks. And if you, if you go back and look at some of the teams he was coaching, he, he coached his local side, Cesinatico, on the Adriatic coach, same place that Marco Pantani, um, the um, Tour de France and Giro d'Italia winning cyclist um, came from uh, and he kind of coached around that area for a long time like Riccione which is a seaside resort teams like uh, Boca San Lazaro which again doesn't doesn't really sound like a football team um, and he would get um, teams promoted to the fourth tier teams promoted to the third tier then teams promoted to the <laughs> second tier um and and that was very much his thing um until he until he got the Udinese job um which you know Udinese this year celebrate their their 25th um straight season in Serie A but in Zaccheroni's time yeah, they were they were seen as a yo-yo club. Um, yeah, they kept going up and down um, between between City A and City B, and they only stabilise. Uh, well, they don't just stabilise; they do a lot more than that under him. But you know, today we have this image of Udinese as being a club um, that um, is very good at recruiting, finds players in in far flung places you've never heard of, develops them, they turn into superstars. And I suppose with Zaccheroni, they looked at him um, and what he did, he'd done with uh, Cosenza um, in, in Calabria, which was essentially keeping them up in Serie B and thought, yeah, we like a bit of that. We'll, we'll give it a go. And, uh, and what he did um, was, yeah, he, I wouldn't say took Serie A by storm, but he, he surprised it um, with his tactical innovation and with the performances he coaxed out of some players like Oliver Bierhoff, for example. Bierhoff, who'd spent four years of his career playing with Ascoli in the, in the second division. You know, we all think of the player he became at Udinese, the player who won the final in Euro 96 and the player we'd see in this team, uh, AC Milan, but really before Zach, he was um, not an unknown quantity, but someone who hadn't fulfilled um, his potential. So for, for Zaccaroni to come onto the scene in the way he did was was pretty extraordinary. 
Michael, that Udinese side were particularly memorable and from a tactical perspective as well. We've discussed other Italian managers on this podcast over the last few weeks and months. So many of them so synonymous with a tactical style and sometimes with a quite specific tactical style or tactical system. Is this where, I guess, the the wider Italian footballing community and, dare I say, the European footballing world started to understand what Zaccaroni's system and philosophies would mean? Yeah, I mean, Zaccaroni was a funny one. He's he's now very much associated with that 3-4-3 system. But initially, he was very much a 4-4-2 man, kind of in the mould of, of Arrigo Sacchi, who I think he drew a lot of inspiration from as someone who didn't make it as a professional footballer. Um, and he, he, you know, initially with Udinese, he was playing that 4-4-2. And it was a funny way that he ended up switching to 3-4-3. It was pretty much because... Um, he went away to Juventus when he was in charge of Udinese. He got a man sent off very early. Um, and his 4-4-2 essentially became a 3-4-2. He didn't take a forward off. He kind of tried to keep the original shape. And his side played so well with, with three defenders and four in midfield that he thought, well, OK, for next week, rather than you know making up the numbers and adding a, a fourth defender again, I'll, I'll add a, a third forward. And they then won at, uh, away at Palmer, who I think was second in the league at that point. And suddenly he transformed into this manager who fundamentally believed in a 3-4-3 system. And, you know, as as the years have gone by, whenever he got another job, um, you know, it was almost a joke to say, oh, it's definitely going to be 3-4-3. And sure enough, it usually was. Well, he, he gets that big move. I, I guess there's almost an extent to which you put big move in inverted commas. It's in 1998. It's at the start of, of this very campaign that is the focus of the rebooted series on The Athletic. But Milan, James, at, at this time, they've had a, a very tough couple of years. They finished in the bottom half the previous two seasons. I wonder whether there was a, a, a period where a few managers may have been trying to get out of Saki's shadow. Well, I think the decision to appoint Zaccheroni marks the a watershed moment in the, the history of, of, of Milan under Silvio Berlusconi um, because it is the end of the Saki Capello era. Um, so since 86, 87, you have Saki in charge um, until 1990, uh, 1991, and then Capello comes in um, and then they both go away and uh, they try uh, a couple of other uh, managers um, and it just doesn't work. And so they end up bringing Saki back and they bring Capello back and it still doesn't work. And so they decide to break bad, I suppose, and go com- in a completely different direction and uh, and hire this coach who was coach of the year as voted by his peers on the back of the fifth place and the third place that he'd achieved with Udinese, um, which also only went out in the, I think, UEFA Cup to Ajax on away goals, that Ajax with Van der Sar, Danny Blind, the De Boer twins, uh, Yari Lippmanen. Um, and I think this is something that, you know, we always talk about Milan it for 20, 25 years as being Berlusconi's Milan. I think what we should call them is Galliani's Milan because Adriano Galliani, the bald, yellow tie-wearing chief executive of of that club, was the brains behind their recruitment, who they signed as players and who they pointed as managers. And I think he always showed himself to be a very shrewd judge of a manager, be it with Capello and Sacchi before, be it with Zaccheroni, who 
was an up-and-coming manager, had never won anything at uh, at the highest level before. Um, but Galliani knew and was right that it was the right time to bring him in, just as he would with Ancelotti in the future, with um, with Max Allegri in in the future um, as well. So I think that's what makes this period really interesting. And the other thing, and I think this is where it's great to be discussing this with Michael, is that Milan had always, pretty much always, played 4-4-2 under under Saki um, and Capello. Um, there was no room for a 10 in that, even though Silvio Berlusconi always wanted his teams to play with a 10 and two strikers. Um, so it's 4-4-2. That's the way we do it. That's Milan's style. And all of a sudden, they appoint a manager who plays a back three and is completely different to, to anything they've had before. So there were there actually no expectations at Milan that season. They did not expect to be in the in the hunt for the title. I mean, you compare their transfer spend with Lazio, which is, I mean, comparing transfer spends with Lazio and Parma in this era is just stupid anyway because they, they spent money they didn't have and lots of it. Um, but they spent $37 million, uh, Milan did. Um, Vier- Lazio practically spent that on Christian Vieri alone. They spent $102 million. So no one thought Milan were going to actually challenge for the Scudetto this year. Michael, James mentioned there that Milan were almost breaking bad with the appointment of Zaccaroni. To what extent was Zaccaroni at the beginning of his spell at Milan trying to use that Udinese blueprint to try and change things tactically? Yeah, it was a big part of his approach. I mean, in one of his first press conferences, he said, look, I'm going to play 3-4-3, but it's not going to be an exact photocopy of what I did at Udinese. Um, it pretty much was long periods. I mean, he brought in beer off, as James spoke about earlier, to play up front, you know, an absolute classic target man who was, you know, first and foremost, a great player in the air rather than with his feet. Um, and he also brought in Thomas Helweg, who, who had a very good couple of campaigns for him at Udinese, who was one of those players who was always more suited to playing wing back than he was full back. Almost a Marcos Alonso, if you like. He was right footed, but like Alonso, never really looked comfortable as a conventional full back. Very good as a wing back. Um, and yeah, he did, you know, he did have the players to play that system. I mean, on the left, he, he didn't really have a regular, but there was Christian Zieger, who was another one who was very much an attacking left back. Uh, the Argentine Julie played there a little bit. Um, in the early days, he tried to use Paolo Maldini as a wing back and Maldini was okay there, but I think it became obvious that he was more suited to playing as a wide centre-back. It was very obvious that the three at the back and the four in midfield was very much similar to what he did at Udinese. But uh, in the final third, things varied a little bit as the season continued. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you've got the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic and pay the postage of £4.95. And if that wasn't enough for you, as listener of the Athletic Pods, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers total for a postage cost of £4.95. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest craft breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then that they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes so far have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. 
as an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Just head to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, the Athletic listeners get two extra free beers. The start of this campaign, certainly in the league, did not go particularly well results-wise. They only won seven of their first 16 league games, Milan. James, what was the... What was the analysis of that time? You said Milan didn't have great expectations here, that they weren't considered the absolute force that maybe they had been previously and would be again. Uh, Were there there murmurings about Zaccaroni? Was there the classic, well, he might be able to do this elsewhere, but you can't come to Milan and, and start imposing this unusual system on a club like this? Well, Silvio Berlusconi is not the easiest uh, owner um, to work with um, because he likes to talk to the the press. Often when he's coming out of parliament, he'll talk about football. um, And, you know, he has always been a 4-3-1-2 kind of guy. Um, and anyone who's who's doing something a little bit different, um, certainly at his club, if it doesn't go uh, right, he will criticise them. Um, but yeah, I think the, the the one thing that Zach had going for him was that he did at least play with a number ten and two strikers, which uh, for for Berlusconi was 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 absolute priority. Um, I think they lost um, their third game of the season at home, so at San Siro against Trapattoni's Fiorentina, um, which started that season really really well, and instead of whistling them. Um, the crowd at San Siro actually got behind uh, the players. And that was seen as an endorsement of uh, Zaccheroni. Um, it uh, bought him time. Um, the players, remember that this, well, not all of this group of players, but certainly the veterans, they they didn't necessarily need a superstar manager um, to command their respect. You know, they they listened to Saki. They bought into Saki's ideas, even though he was this, you know, shoe salesman who had coached at lower levels before he got the job um, to coach Milan. And so they got they got behind him, and also they their pride was hurting on the back of of those um, prior two campaigns. Um, they really wanted to show that they uh, they could be competitive again, although they certainly didn't expect um, to be so competitive so soon. Of course, some huge names in the squad. Some of them at the back: Costa Curta, Paolo Maldini, of course, synonymous with Milan and with a back four. But, Michael, in this system, in a back three, what are their roles in Zaccaroni's team? There were fairly traditional defensive roles. This wasn't the type of back three you see with some of the modern sides like Atalanta, for example, where the, the centre-backs are coming forward on the ball. It's, it was pretty much cautious. I mean, Costa Carta and Maldini, obviously, two very solid defenders. And it was usually Luigi Sala who played alongside them at the back. There was also uh, Roberto Ayala, who obviously uh, was very renowned later in his career for Valencia, but didn't really play too much of a part uh, for this side. Also, Bruno and Gotti, later of Bolton Wanderers fame, um, as well as Ibrahim Barr, who was uh, obviously a wing-back, but uh, another one who later represented Bolton. But yeah, it was a fairly 
a fairly cautious back three and the wing backs usually Helveg on the right and and as I say Ziegler or, or Julie on the left um but it was really I guess the excitement was uh was what was happening further forward Sam Allardyce was obviously watching Football Italia James he would have enjoyed the central midfield duo Ambrosini and Albertini what were their roles as central midfield players in this side well, Albertini was someone who kind of embodied the spirit of AC Milan. He came through the academy and uh, I think he was a midfield player who could could do pretty much everything quite well. Um, your kind of classic six and a half, seven out of ten um, player when it came to all kinds of boxes that needed ticking. Um, with Ambrosini, he was, again, one of these young players who, who Milan had signed, had sent away on loan. He was part of the Vicenza side on the Guidolin that uh, reached the, the semifinals of the Cup Winners' Cup. Um, and he was a, a willing runner who, you know, in terms of getting into that team, I wouldn't say couldn't believe his luck, but he recognised his limitations and was willing to do a lot of um, the kind of grunt work and uh, get up and down the pitch and get the ball to the players who could do more with it um, than he could. Um, but I think it's actually quite interesting if we just focus on, on Ambrosini um, uh, for, for a little while longer is because there's him and then there's Christian Abbiati. Um, the goalkeeper. Milan have three goalkeepers um, in in this season. Um, they have Jens Lehmann, who starts it. They signed him from Schalke. And if, yeah, a few months later, they sent him to Borussia Dortmund. Um, and that's because Lehmann had uh, a really bad start to the season. He lost his place and then was basically fearing that he was going to lose his place in the national team. So he, he basically uh, took a hike. Um, and then you've got Sebastiano Rossi, and uh, Rossi was this kind of hot head goalkeeper. I mean, in terms of that that uh, reputation that goalkeepers have of being crazy, in one game against Perugia, um, he concedes a penalty. One of the Perugia play, players goes to pick the ball out of the net to, to get a quick restart, and he punched is that player um, the referee then then comes over he grabs the referee by the neck um, and is uh, is shown not only shown his marching orders but gets banned for five games and uh, and, and Abiati comes in this young no name who they signed from just down the road in Monza and uh, and has an, out, an outstanding season um, particularly in the final game of the season against Perugia where he makes a, a stunning save from the guy that um uh, that Sebastiano Rossi punched um, to to secure the two one win that helps them secure the title. So you, you you've got these young players who've, who've come into the side. Michael's mentioned the defense. Remember, this is when Franco Baresi has just retired. Maratasotti has just retired. Maldini's never played as a uh, well, never played in a back three before. Never played as a centre back aside from in the ninety four European Cup final. So there's a lot of kind of change that's going on, and and this kind of um, fresh. There's a, there's a freshness about Milan that comes with Abbiati and Ambrosini. You can also see why that might have contributed to a slower start as as they started to get used to the new system and, and various players being bedded into the side for the first time. Michael, we've talked about it uh, throughout. We've hinted at it, but the real party is happening in the final third at the top end of the pitch, as it so often did with Zaccaroni. Talk us through who is playing in the front three and how they are formatted, I suppose, by the manager. Well, yeah, this is the, the real story. I mean, the first thing to say is that Oliver Biroff plays pretty much every game as the number nine. The side is based around him. 
But there's two games in the opening month where uh, Zaccaroni tries to play beer off with George Ware and Maurizio Gans either side. And that's basically like playing three number nines. Um, and I think it it was good in the long term for Milan that they lost both those games to Fiorentina and Cagliari because Zaccaroni says, OK, I can't play three out and out strikers here. And then generally he tries to play a more creative play in that front three. Sometimes it's uh, someone who's who's wide and drifting inside into the centre of the pitch, like Leonardo. And sometimes it's more of a, a defined number 10. Um, and actually in the opening months of the campaign, it's often a young guy called uh, Domenico Morfeo, who's often playing as the number 10. And he's maybe someone who won't be particularly familiar to a lot of listeners, but he was, I guess, is, can be considered one of the kind of great lost talents of Italian football that period, was almost considered alongside Andrea Pirlo and, uh, you know, the next great number 10 for Italy um, before Pirlo shifted his position. Morfeo does okay, but uh, it tends to be more of the 3-4-3 that um, Zaccaroni continues with in the midway part of the campaign, sometimes Leonardo is number 10. But then it's, you know, the, the real story is what happens with Boban, who the first half of the season has generally been used, if at all, as one of the central midfielders, as one of the two central midfielders, falls out with Zaccaroni, gets a couple of silly red cards. But it's he who emerges in the second half of the campaign as the guy who, who plays as the number 10 during the run-in um, and is, is pretty much Milan's best player during that period. Suddenly the system clicks. They've got Boban playing as the number 10, Biroff as the target man, and usually George Ware playing as a second striker, running in behind, providing that pace and that dribbling and that directness. And then suddenly, almost without Zaccaroni planning it that way, they have this really well-balanced front three, which I think is is almost more in keeping with the way a lot of other sides in Italy were playing at that point, not always with a back three, but often with a very talented number 10 behind two forwards in the kind of classic Italian style. James, what's the Boban story with Milan? He, he was there for a long time. There are flashes of excellence but it wasn't always an easy relationship between him and, and Milan at different times <laughs> you're talking about more recent history <laughs> <laughs> uh, no I mean with 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 Zvone, he he joins the the club um, at a time when there there was uh, still the the three foreigner rule um, he, there's not space in the in the team for him you look at the kind of competition that they had particularly when he was there on the Fabio Capello um, so he goes on loan at Bari I think as with a lot of these Milan players who were signed not as, as young prospects because Boban was still was already kind of established certainly back home in, in Croatia um, but going away on loan um, uh, at that stage they really kind of adapted, learned the league. And yeah, as Michael was saying at, at, at the top of the show, this was the most competitive league in the world. So anywhere you went and played in Serie A, you learned something, you became better. And then under Zaccheroni, he started this season playing in midfield alongside Albertini um, and then lost his place, in part because of ill-discipline, in part because something just wasn't clicking for him there. And I think they needed that uh, kind of that ballast that having Ambrosini and Albertini together could provide. I wouldn't say Boban was ever lightweight, but he was always seen as that more cerebral uh, midfield player who wanted a little bit more uh, time on the ball, look, wanted to look up, pick a pass. And I think he just found himself to be more suited um, in that role, just pushed a little bit further up further up um, towards the end. But Zvon has always been considered one of the great football minds. I don't think it's any kind of 
surprise um, that when Paolo Maldini had uh, had his pick um, to, to to come and flank him as as kind of chief football officer at uh, at Milan um, uh, last summer. Uh, after Leonardo left, a number, another member of this team, he he picked Zvone because Zvone seems to have an understanding. Uh, he he quote unquote gets football in a way that not not many even footballers do. So I think that kind of football brains trust, that intelligence that this team had, in some respects was was uh, embodied in him. Michael, the end of the season is. A remarkable one. Everything clicks for Milan and they win their last seven games in a row. Was that the key? Boban's change of position and role in this side? It feels like from what you've both described, they had the goal scorers. They had the water carriers in midfield ticking the boxes, as James said. Was it the the creativeness that they needed in between those two? Yeah, I think it really transformed their season Um, and it really happened uh in a 2-1 win at home to Parma um I think in April early April where they go behind and and Boban kind of just suddenly takes control in this almost old school Roy the Rovers way and and gets the the assist for the winner which is a long pass over the defense to Gans who beats uh Buffon and Cannavaro and slides it into an empty net um and that same day was when Lazio who were their main title rivals lost the derby 3-1 to Roma and suddenly the title race is on and Milan who haven't really put together a winning run all season I don't think they'd won more than three games on the trot at that point then go on this incredible winning run where they win their last seven to win the title very narrowly I mean there's some quite memorable results in there particularly when Zaccaroni and Biroff and um, and Helveg go back to Udinese and win 5-1 with this incredible performance where Boban scores two Biroff scores to where also scores and it's basically like okay this is the front three that's that's really clicked now um and in those you know last seven games of the season they're a really thrilling side to watch I mean they they get a little bit lucky on a couple of occasions there's a 3-2 win over Sampdoria where they get a last minute own goal to to seal the victory um but I think at this time Sven-Goran Eriksson's Lazio are, are basically playing slightly more functional football than they would the following season. And and it's Milan, really, who become the neutral's choice. I mean, remember, this is a side who had finished 10th and 11th in the previous two campaigns. So for them to put together this kind of winning run and pip Moneybags Lazio, uh, you know, on the final furlong, you can't really call it an underdog story because this is Milan we're talking about. But it was still quite unexpected and, and quite thrilling to watch. They hit the top on the penultimate day with a 4-0 win against Empoli at the San Siro. But, but Michael, you've identified the game before that, a 2-0 win at Juventus, as maybe the most memorable and meaningful victory of this seven-game winning streak that sees them win the league. Yeah, I mean, I think just because it was it was away at Juventus, who, who were still the dominant side um, in Serie A at that point, uh, this is where George Ware scores uh, a couple of goals. Um, the first one was fun because he kind of headed it past Peruzzi, which was a really clever piece of improvisation. And the second one, I think, shows what the front three were all about. Uh, Biroff battled for a high ball. Uh, Boban collected the knockdown and dinked it over the defence for George Ware, who ran through and scored. And that really showed what they're all about. I mean, Biroff was the target man. Boban was providing the the invention and where the, the pace in behind. And, you know, as I say, that, that's kind of what Italians like from their front three. They like a quite a defined um, separation of roles with a real classic number 10 like Boban was. 
and two forwards who offer something different. And, um, you know, the, the interesting thing about this, and, and maybe James can speak about this more than me, was that uh, Berlusconi, as, as mentioned earlier, was always someone who favoured number 10. So he always wanted number 10 in his side. And he kind of attempted to take the credit for Milan switching to this system. There was 3-4-1-2 rather than 3-4-3 three, three, because it featured Boban or, or Leonardo sometimes in that very classic Italian number 10 role. Yeah, I mean, you know, Berlusconi coached his uh, his his company team um, to great success. Edel Nord, um, you know, he was uh, <laughs> he was wasted on politics, uh, wasted on 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 television, and uh, and all the other interests that that he had. This was this was what he had a real talent and flair for, and he he showed that because he only did it part time. You know, it was a ceremonial presidency, and yet he would you know come in um, at times when when Milan needed him. You know, sort of before Champions League final, like the one in 2007 in Athens and basically say um, to Pippo Inzaghi you know you make you need to make this kind of run as if you need to teach Pippo Inzaghi what kind of run to make um, and you will you will score a goal that way and um, and you know obviously Silvio was always right um, and, and and this is the thing with with Berlusconi is, is his opinion really did matter I mean it did it did sway the kind of needle when it came to, 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 to the media reaction. He owned a lot of the media. Um, you, you only think of Euro 2000 when Italy reached the, the final. They lose um, to France and he essentially goes on TV, um, criticizes Zoff and Zoff resigns in disgust. So, um, yeah, this is uh, that's that's who Zaccaroni was dealing with. And, you know, it wasn't just the back three, um, you know, which, you know, as Michael said, was was kind of there was the quid pro quo of having a number 10 at the other end. But it was also, mm, Zaccaroni, you come from a bit of a left wing region uh, politically. Mm, uh, are you a communist? Um, I hope not. Um, and all those kind of things just play in. Um, with uh, with Zach, um, but you know, I, I think for Milan fans, it was uh, the the game that really kind of meant most in this in this run in was that Sampdoria game when uh, when it looked like it was over when you know they they concede the two two um, and Gans ends up scoring a scissor kick off the backside of um, of Marcello Castellini. Sending David Platt and Lee Sharp. Well, David David Platt had already been sacked, but Spalletti sampled down. That kind of summed up some of the luck that that Milan side had been riding. Because Michael's right, they did click and start playing well, um, particularly in that, that towards the end of the season. But they always seem to get that that little that little rub of the green, um, which I think just uh, psychologically really helps a team believe that it's going to be their year. Um, and yeah, I think all of those things mixed in. Um, to this uh, this title t- title win, which for a lot of the Milan players, including Maldini, who'd won so much before, they remember really fondly because uh, it was the one that they weren't supposed to win, and they did it. Their first title in three years. What's the story of that final day win against Perugia, uh, James? I noticed that Julie was on the score sheet, and he's not a name that we've heard yet. Yeah, Julie was on the on the on the score sheet, and uh, I think that that game again goes down with uh, with a miraculous save from from Abiati on on uh, on, uh, on Christian Buki, um, because you know obviously they were just one point uh, ahead of Lazio um, going going into that game. They really needed to hold their nerve, and I think um, 
even though this this team had completely kind of changed, it still had players like Paolo Maldini, uh, Billy Costacurta, Albertini, who'd been there and done that, and uh, and Bierhoff as well. You, you you only have to look at the the Euro '96 final in terms of players who knew what it took to get the job done, um, and they were they were able to get it over the line. I mean, even they, they brought people. People forget about this, but they even brought back Roberto Donadoni from playing um, with the legendary New York Metro Stars. Um, and you know, although he only played ten games, you know that that having that experience around that link to when Milan were all conquering um, was was certainly helpful. Um, but yeah, it's 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 definitely a uh, that final day, and we'd we'd see the following season um, the title go down to the final day as well. Very emblematic of this era in Serie A, just how tightly contested um, uh, these league championships were. Michael, you've done a lot of analysis on Italian football and the rest of European football around this time. How good do you think this Milan side were? I mean, I think they were more memorable than they were good, if that makes sense. It was it was not a classic Milan side. It wasn't the, the Milan of Saki. It wasn't even the Milan of, of Ancelotti a few years later. But I just think the way that they won it, the way it was so unexpected, the way that it was this kind of quite classic combination of quite functional players in defensive positions and then a real all-star front three, um, it was just a really memorable title victory. And, you know, they didn't repeat it. They didn't go on to do much in... Uh, in the Champions League, but I just think for for a one-off campaign, it was um, it was one of those titles that I think is associated more with the manager than any of the players. You know, you look at Roma winning it two years later, you think of I think Totti before you think of Capello, but this was very much a Zaccaroni side. You see Milan '99, you think Zaccaroni, you think three-four-three, and I think he has to take a lot of credit for um, you know going into his first experience at a big club and taking them from mid-table, in fact, bottom half the previous year, to win the title. You just don't really see that in Syria. And James, what about Zaccaroni? Where does his career take him from this moment, winning the title with Milan in his first season in charge of the biggest club that he had taken charge of at that point? Well, look, I think when you prove yourself to be able to win at big clubs, other big clubs come calling. And I think he's only one of three or four coaches to have coached all of the big three. In, uh, in Italy. So, you know, he coaches Inter, he coaches uh, Juventus as well, um, doesn't have the same success. Um, and then when he seemed to be quite washed up, remember he was the coach in charge um, that night um, when Fulham uh, beat Juventus at Craven Cottage with that uh, beautiful Deuce Dempsey, uh, Savicevic-like lob. Um and uh, he ended up going around the world and has been going around the world ever since. I think he did very good things with, with Japan um, in terms of bringing that uh, Italian expertise, which, you know, in terms of you can look at Italian football and say that um, it's declined over the, last, um, over the last two decades. But one of the things that it keeps exporting is is knowledge um, and great coaches. You know that's certainly true in the Premier League, as as, as Michael wrote about in his in his book. You, you know, I think in terms of nationality, the, the Italians have won the Premier League more than any other nationality. Um, and uh, yeah, with Zach, that is going you know to 
um, to Asia, it's going to the Middle East, it's, um, it's bringing that kind of um, professionalism and approach to, uh, to training and to youth development that I think still makes him a kind of very useful touch point um, for, for a lot of people who want to, to learn and grow their football. Uh, and Michael, has he always followed the same tactical blueprint that we've discussed throughout this episode? Yeah, pretty much uh, always through at the back. Sometimes it's varied it and played with a number 10. But, um, you know, he's been most notable, I guess, in, in recent years for coaching Japan very successfully for a long period of time. I remember their Asian Cup success in, in 2011. He had a, a really good system there, great generation of players, again, playing 3-4-3 with, uh, you know, tremendous attacking, overlapping wingbacks. Um, he is a manager that has been like I say, associated with the system and almost wedded to that system throughout his career. And I think it was almost slightly sad that he he, he became seen as a little bit old hat quite quickly in his career um, when, you know, he had really helped to semi-revolutionise Italian football in uh, in the late 1990s. So, yeah, he's he's hasn't been too prominent in Italian football in in recent years, but certainly I'll always uh, have quite a soft spot for him and, and his work with this team. Well, I'm very glad that the rebooted series on the Athletic site and now on one of its podcasts is focusing on the 98-99 season because it's been fantastic to hear your expertise, firstly from James Horncastle and also Michael Cox on what was a memorable title race and a memorable AC Milan title victory, even if not perhaps one of their classic sides. It's been fantastic to hear all about Alberto Zaccaroni and his tactical system. So thank you, James, very much for joining us once again on the Zonal Marking Pod. A pleasure. And Michael, we'll keep doing what we're doing, more episodes in the coming weeks about all sorts of topics. This has been on the 98-99 Serie A season one by AC Milan. This is part of a platform-wide series called Rebooted, uh, looking at the 98-99 season as if we were living it right now. That is being written about uh, all sorts of different angles on the Athletic site and on this pod and others as well. If you'd like to sign up to The Athletic and you haven't got a subscription already, theathletic.co.uk slash zonal marking is the place to go for 40% off your annual subscription. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you'll join us again next week on the Zonal Marking podcast brought to you by The Athletic. The Athletic.